Standard Issue for all women. Hello! Welcome to the Standard Issue Podzine. We're recording live at Latitude. Give us a cheer, Latitude. That's the stuff. I'm Mickey Noonan, and I used to write sex copy for Lads Mags, which means I can tell you with some authority that there are four positions and everything else is a variation on a theme. I'm joined by... I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and to you people at least, I'm seemingly preferable to Mumford and Sons. <laughs> and I'm Jen Offord, and I've smelt better. Later on, we're joined by comedian, broadcaster and guilty feminist Deborah Francis-White and comedian and actor Susie Wacoma. And I'll be doing Disney's The Rescuers with actually surprisingly surprising results. (laughs) Read the script, Anna. (laughs) Uh, So usually at this point, one of us would say, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. And then to prepare listeners for the jingle, we'd say, cue sting. But we are live and stingless. So now... Brace yourselves as we crawl across the fetid quicksand that is the news. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. And it's happy anniversary to Theresa May, who has somehow managed to be Prime Minister for a year now, clinging onto the position like shit to the arse of an elderly guinea pig. Although it does look like her owners might well be taking her to live on the farm any day soon. Um, no wonder she did a little cry. So let's look at Teabag's year in review. After winning the Hunger Games that was the Conservative Party leadership contest, May has provided strong and stable leadership. If you expand the parameters of strong and stable to include everything from totally absent to horrifically ill-judged. That's right, Theresa May ran roughshod through a wheat field of dreams. And those are the dreams of basically everyone, including Boris Johnson. When she formed her cabinet, May employed the age-old tactic of keeping your friends close and your bell enemies even closer. And then on the other side of the the political spectrum, having found his niche in the market, perpetual campaigner and people's princess Jeremy Corbyn is set to attack May's zombie government, by which we assume he means that the Conservatives are dead behind the eyes and constantly in search of brains. Not content with creating instability in Northern Ireland, May of the Dead this week managed to annoy both Scotland and Wales, with Nicola Sturgeon accusing her of a naked power grab, which until this point I'd always thought was a hot yoga position. But yet, no amount of deep breathing and downward dogging is likely to make the EU any more flexible to whatever plans May has got for, possibly has, who the fuck knows, for post-Brexit Britain. But talking about downward-facing dogs... Over in Gilead, Donald the Younger rode a metaphorical segue into the miasma of US politics. He was this week forced to release an an email in which he was offered dirt on Hillary Clinton from a Russian source. Trump, the elder, defended his son, saying he was innocent and praising his transparency, which, to be fair, was excellent, inasmuch as you can see straight through him. Most interesting is Trump, the youngest, defence. He claimed he wouldn't have gone to the meeting if everyone was as bothered by Russia then as they are now. As if somehow going to the meeting played no part in the movement from the one state of affairs to the other rather like a man who claims he probably wouldn't have farted in a packed lift if he'd known how obsessed everyone was suddenly going to get about how confined spaces smell. A woman ruined $200,000 worth of art while trying to take a selfie. 
Three sculptures were permanently damaged when the woman stumbled while crouched to take a photo of herself. And in a pricey game of domino rally, ten sculptures standing on pedestals then took a tumble. She later went on to restore an Italian fresco, call an EU referendum and stand for US president. The selfie has since gone on to win the Turner Prize. Meanwhile, in science, researchers claim to have found a switch that can turn beta mice into alpha males. Two newly pumped up mice were reported to have immediately had a face-off in a plastic tube as if recreating the TV series Gladiators. Bring on the cotton bud fighting, I say. Interestingly, when their switch was turned off, some beta mice continued to behave like pricks, having dined out on the taste of victory, which goes some way to explaining Milo Yiannopoulos. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where all you ladies throw down your marigolds and all you men just talk amongst yourself for a bit. It's time for sexism of the week. Jeremy Corbyn had competition for the title of People's Princess this week after Andy, feminist icon Murray, fresh from defeat in the Wimbledon quarterfinals, called out a reporter on sexism. An American journalist began a question with a fact about Murray's opponent. Sam Querrey, who said, was the first American to make it to a major semi-final since 2009. Male player, said Murray, to the internet's rapturous applause. Sorry, what now? Oh yeah, right, there's that bird who's got 23 Grand Slam titles, isn't there? As we had Susie Wacoma and Deborah Francis-White on our Latitude panel, we took the opportunity to ask them a few questions. Starting with, what never fails to make you laugh? Susie answered first. Okay, I'm going to say it. I'm, I really love my body. It's, it's really cool. Um, and I'm a strong believer that I look better with, with no clothes on than I do with clothes on. But i tell you what I love doing. So I've got a fat ass, And... Um, what I love doing is being completely naked and wiggling my bum so hard that the, the flesh of the, of the arse just jiggles and it makes a cupping sound. Uh-huh. And, um, but it also sort of like in between the makes like a cupping sound and it sort of accumulates air and it feels tickly. And, um, and whoever I happen to share my bed with, I'll go, look, 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 and I'll turn around and I'll just do it like that in front of them. And it makes me piss my... Not literally piss myself... <laughs> But it makes me laugh so much. And they're normally just looking at me going, Flower, what are you doing? And it's just me going, like that. It really is. You should try it. Something else that made me laugh recently, Susie Wacoma and I, for a a podcast challenge, for the Guilty Feminist, (laughs) for Intrepid Women, and it hasn't come out yet, we jumped out of a plane... And the most extensive thing, considering it's a podcast, so no one can see. No. We could have just like made it happen with vocals, but we actually decided to jump out of can the plane. Can you do a few vocals? Do your jumping out of the plane vocals now. Ah! Yeah. Because it's no in freefall, no one can hear you scream because it is actually the wind rush is too so much. Painful. But on the way there on the train, we were going, "What are we doing? What are we doing?" Because neither of us are that kind of person, <laughs> and we were going, "What are we doing? What are we doing?" And I said, no, but come the glorious revolution when feminists are needed, we'll be the ones who can say, follow us. And Susie went, what? Because we jumped out of a plane strapped to an army man. (laughs) And I said, let's leave the bit about the army man out. And we just could not stop laughing. We were laughing till we cried. And even up in the air, we kept laughing. (laughs) Mainly because they kept making jokes. Like, oh, we're going to die. I was like, not funny. (laughs) Honest, the lady was strapping us in and she was going, well... I saw your, uh, your trainer today taking his medication, so you should be all right. Although his cat just died. 
<laughs> and then we were like, okay, <laughs> very funny, but we're actually quite nervous now. Could you stop with the jokes? Yeah, I mean, most of them survive, don't they, Trace? Yeah, most of them. I mean, eight out of ten people survive, don't they? Yeah. And then a man walked past really slowly with a neck brace, like a really big yeah, neck brace. And so was like, look at him, look at him. And we couldn't stop laughing. It was the perfect timing. He just we were like, okay, calm down. And this guy was just like, Ugh. <laughs> Okay, so on the flip side, yeah. and I'm going to start with uh, Arsh Jiggling Wakoma here. Yeah. Um, what never fails to make you angry? Oh, <laughs> let me count the ways. Um, uh, I rudeness. I just, oh, I know that's very, very sort of broad and covers a, a, a lot. But I just feel like it came from like being at at, at drama school. Uh, and you'd get certain people who would arrive, certain directors, who sort of believed that in order to sort of push an actor, you had to be cruel to them. And if you pushed them to sort of get them to depend on your approval, that meant that you would sort of deliver a great performance. That does not work with me. If you're rude to me, I shut down if I don't slap you. Like, it doesn't work. I cannot stand... You can always ask for some in a nice, polite way. It really... It, pisses me off you there's no need for rudeness just thinking about it's made you fume oh me. i'm literally i'm gonna punch myself in the face that's um, like the weirdest thing to do yep um <laughs> had a cider um no rudeness can't stand it cool um i'm gonna go to hannah what makes you angry dunleavy oh weird shit that nobody else would appreciate um <laughs> not that reasonably recently my plumber asked me out and that made me really angry because i thought oh fucking hell i gotta find another plumber now it took me ages to find him. So that sort of shit. Deb? Um, I'm going to say Donald Trump, Brexit, being dismissed, being ignored. The world. Yeah. I don't, I don't mind when, if someone has a go at me, but if someone just ignores me or dismisses me, that it's, it's a button that gets uh. pushed. So I'd rather them say, I'm annoyed about this, or can we do it more like that? When they just ignore my email, yeah. or they're like, and not just ignoring it because they're busy, or they haven't seen it, or they've got something else going on. When it's a, a tactical ignoring. Yeah. If I feel you are tactically ignoring me, I will get really riled. And I'm sure it's from being shunned. When I, I you was a Jehovah's Witness, and then when you leave, you get shunned. And so uh. I think it triggers to use a very a word that's overused now. It, yeah. it, it provokes... Um, uh, of an anger in me that it was that is irrational. My husband says, "Whatevs." <laughs> How dare he, Jen? What about you? Um, I get really annoyed by people who don't understand like how to conduct themselves in public spaces, like standing on the right side of the escalator. Oh, and and like. I'll get off the train and then I'll just stand in front of the fucking door. What? That's, that's or people silly. Who, or, 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 or people who are on the tube and they start pressing the button like it's going to make it open, not knowing that it's like the driver controls that. Like, what is that about? They're like, oh, pressing it doesn't, nah, control. No, exactly. No, I, I, yeah, just, or people with umbrellas. Just all. Yeah, generally. anyone with an umbrella. Because I'm about eye height yes, me too. of the average lady's ah. umbrella. And that's ridiculous. On this, people who, when you apologise for accidentally doing something, do not accept that apology. I can't stand someone who can't accept an apology. Sorry, that's Ooh, me. Do you, do you know, earlier we were walking past here to do something and one of those Greenpeace dudes stopped and said, uh, have you got time to talk? And we said no. And Jen said, sorry. And he said, don't apologise to me. Apologise to the orangutans. <laughs> but he didn't even have a fucking orangutan with him. No. 
I get the whole invasion of personal space, like loads of stuff makes me angry, but I run a lot and I don't think there's any time that I've been running that I haven't had, Oi! or just like, what, my favourite was nice legs, actually, like he'd been thinking about it. <laughs> actually. He's but, gone, no, 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 actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the closer you get, the better they are, love. Thanks, mate. Going to go over and little rubber my button about you. Um, very lonely. Um, once I was running, and there's a, a street where I run, and it looks out on a lovely view of my home, well, my town where I live, and a guy was in his parked car, and as I ran, he opened his door to slap my arse as I ran past. <gasps> no. Right, yeah? He's dead now. It's not uh. true. <laughs> I wish he was dead now. No, that's a bit harsh. I wish he was in pain. Um, or maybe it I wish fear was all over his head. Yeah. Um, but I was angry with myself, and I think I get angry with myself a lot for not saying something, but I was on my own, and it was getting dark, and then I just got angry with the injustice of the road. But I did get a personal best. So every day. Oh, there you go. Do you know what? Because I, I, I run quite a bit, and I was running... Um, I used to live in Labrick Grove, and I was running along the road, and I've had a lot of that, like loads of people shouting at me. And um, quite late at night, and this white car just sort of slowed down next to me. And I, I was like, no. This time, I'm going to know what to say. I'm going to have it prepared. And this person is going to just get the fuck away from me. So I stopped, and I was just like, you! And the window went down, and it was my flatmate's mum. <laughs> She's like, hello. <laughs> I just thought you wanted a, a lift home. I was like, oh, so many levels, because I am running, and this defeats the point of the running, and I was about to insult you. Yeah, sure, hopped him. <laughs> okay, um, I'm going to start with Jen on this one. Who was the first fictional female character that you related to? Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes. Because I was an angry teenager growing up in Harwich where people were just fucking throwing beer over their face. Just needed, to, yeah, some moves for, you know, when approached by a weird old man just to send him, like, flying. Oddly, you're doing boxing lessons. You're actually I am, yeah. I, I am literally Buffy the Vampire. Uh, yeah. She keeps sending us photos of her bruised knuckles and going, I punched a man. I pay him to let me punch him. Yeah, it, you know, it's a, it's a mutually beneficial arrangement. Like, you know. Deb, what about you? Uh, Anne of Green Gables. Um, she was uh, adopted, which I'm adopted, um, and she had a lot of weird, random things she cared about, like her name being spelt with an E, and things that I related to as a child. And she was also a bit off-kilter looking. She had red hair, and my hair was much redder when I was a kid. And I played her when I was uh, like about 10 years old, and still, I've still got a picture of me in the paper on my mantelpiece of me playing Anne of Green Gables. So yeah, I feel very tight with Anne. <laughs> Susie, what about you? Weirdly, the first character that I um, identified with is um, Muriel in Muriel's Wedding. (laughs) And actually, when I then thought about it deeper, I was like, that's a little bit worrying. Um, But it wasn't to do with the wedding or... Actually, no, ABBA had quite a bit to do with it because I really loved ABBA. But it was it was just being there and being, uh, you know, sort of being the odd one in your family. And I feel like 
there was such um, was such an identity with being the, the daughter of um, immigrants, Nigerian immigrants to be very specific, that you sort of had to fit into a certain mould and I never ever did and everyone thought it was very strange and confusing and annoying and then the first time I watched something and I was like oh my gosh that's her and we're completely different like she's Australian and white and but there was just so much about the sort of internal life going on within her that I really really identified with and the sort of joy in music and just being a bit of a loner um, and I just find it sort of beautiful and hopeful and sort of the sort of idea of a transformation I always sort of longed for that that never happened but um, it, yeah that's the character and it was also really funny and can, sweet can, can I ask a supplemental question no. do you think for young girls of colour now there are more positive role models on television than yeah it was because you? what I've just told you is that I had to try and identify with or Muriel's wedding yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that was the, you know it was kind of running low uh, the people <laughs> who looked like me that I could identify with um, but no it's definitely better and you know I've had I mean not to blow my own trumpet but I've had I had a young girl even just last night who was just like I've seen someone that looks like me on TV like it means a lot and it, but it was something that I definitely had to go without Standard issue for all women. Hi, I'm Gabby Hutchinson-Crouch. I am a comedy writer and nerd. Since I was a girl, I've always loved sci-fi, but sci-fi hasn't always loved me. I love the genre because the possibilities of its worlds have always seemed boundless, but I didn't really twig until later on in life just how limited those ideas tended to be for the half of the population who continue to egregiously go around being female. I loved Hitchhiker's Guide and Red Dwarf, even though they consigned female roles to side characters and poorly written love interests. The Star Trek of my childhood, The Next Generation, killed off one of its three female regulars and had the other two in caregiver roles, with a grand total of one good episode between them, Face of the Enemy, season six. It's great. Sci-fi books, if anything, were worse, with the betitted gender generally represented as pretty young things who'd utterly fall in love with deeply average-looking, middle-aged white male protagonists in stories largely written coincidentally by deeply average-looking middle-aged white male writers. Even my once-beloved Kurt Vonnegut was, looking back on it, misogyno as hell. I mean, the guy wrote a short story in which a guy rapes a young woman who very naughtily doesn't want any sex, and she's all, wow, thanks, fella. You really assaulted some sense into me there. I mean, who hurt you, Kurt Vonnegut? Beside the Nazis who took you prisoner in the war, I'll grant you that was messed up, but besides that. Representation's important. If you keep representing a whole gender as only good for fucking and dispensing emotional labour and sandwiches, that ends up rubbing off on all your audience. For me, the revelations were the twin barrels of Ellen Ripley and Buffy Summers in my late teens. Suddenly the infinitely fast universes of sci-fi and fantasy were big enough to let my type of human being also be the hero. But at that point, I certainly never imagined that a character played by a series of different male actors could be played by a woman. Doctor Who didn't really come onto my radar until the Eccleston reboot. I'd watched a little bit of the old McCoy episodes, mostly for his leather jacket-wearing companion Ace, and the Paul McGann TV movie had been utterly forgettable, with the exception of all the mid-regeneration gurning. What the Eccleston series did that was brilliant, which drew in so many new viewers, was it immediately put the narrative focus on Rose. And the first episode isn't really about the titular Doctor, it's about a London girl in a boring job with a broken family and an unfulfilling love life who accidentally ends up pinging around time doing space heroics all over the universe, but mostly in Cardiff. 
Doctor Who's main companion has almost always been female, and so the show has already been telling stories from the narrative perspective of women for some time. However, due to the nature of the show and its titular protagonist, those stories always tend to fall along very similar lines. The pretty young woman who has a boring life and feels there's something missing and then meets this thrilling, mysterious, genius man with a magic phone box who can take her anywhere, but mostly London or Cardiff. And that is until now. Now whoever takes the role of the next companion will be whisked away by this thrilling, mysterious, genius woman with a magic phone box that can take them anywhere but mostly London or Cardiff. Personally, I didn't get my hopes up over the casting of the 13th Doctor. Since Tennant quit, there's been a tendency to float the idea that the next Doctor might be a woman or a person of colour, and then, after reaping the PR of apoplectic, fragile white masculinity and the potential excitement of the rest of us, going with another white man anyway. I geared myself up for the usual explanations that, yet again, it just so happened that a white man was the best person for the job and that the decision had nothing to do with fears that a protagonist of a different demographic might be harder to market. I didn't let my hopes get worked up by the fact that the last few series of the show seemed to have been tentatively floating the idea that all Time Lords can regenerate into any gender by exploring Michelle Gomez's gloriously bonkers and engaging turn as Missy, the female regeneration of the master. I didn't let myself get too excited, but anyone could see that the idea of a female doctor was being seeded. I'm going to go ahead and say it. If the idea of a female doctor comes completely out of the blue to you, if it's utterly incomprehensible to you at this point, I'm going to go ahead and assume that you haven't actually been watching the show for some time. If your argument is that if women want to be represented as the protagonist in a show, then we should make our own heroes, I've got some news to tell you about a lady from the 60s called Verity Lambert. If your argument is that women have only just started invading the sacrosanct male enclave that is sci-fi and nerd culture and must be stopped, I've got even bigger news to tell you about sci-fi since its inception and this lady from the olden days called Mary Shelley. If your argument is that the Doctor is too pretty now and should not be wank fodder, my guy, you're going to absolutely shit a brick when you hear about this place I know called fanfiction.net. If you're upset that a white, conventionally good-looking actress playing a protagonist is too politically correct, I'm going to assume you missed the Doctor punching a racist recently, or Bill getting fanny blocked by the Pope, or the two sets of magic immortal space lesbians now pinging around the universe in a 50s diner and a puddle. Don't think Jodie Whittaker has the authority to play the Doctor? Do yourself a favour and watch the brilliant Attack the Block. Believe the Daily Mail's headline that male TV protagonists are being exterminated? Mate, have you actually watched any telly lately? Men's stories, heterosexual, able-bodied white men's stories in particular, are still being told all the fricking time. And this isn't really about the noisy handful of mostly middle-aged voices who likely haven't watched the show in years but still reckon they're somehow hurt by the casting of the 13th Doctor. It isn't even really about me. Uh, Doctor Who is a family show and the representation is hugely important for kids. So what do Doctor Who's young fans make of it? As luck would have it, around ten years ago, I acquired a human female of my own. Her name is Violet, and like her mother before her, she enjoys sci-fi and fantasy. Doctor Who is a particular favourite of hers. So let's ask her what she thinks. Why do you like Doctor Who? I like it because it's a science fiction show with time travel and stuff like that. And who's been your favourite Doctor so far? The Tenth Doctor. Who's been your favourite companion so far? Bill, Rose and Donna. Okay. Uh, what did you think about the master becoming Missy? I thought it was a nice change. 
Yeah, you think it was believable that the master could turn into Missy. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think? What did you think when you saw the latest Doctor Who? I couldn't really believe it because it was such a big shock because there's been 12, like, before generations and they've all been male and this one just turns out to be a female and it's sort of, wow. Yeah, is it exciting? Yeah. Yeah. Talking to Violet, I can't help but think about the sci-fi I used to consume as a kid with its limited and largely unhealthy representation of women. I think about her excitement at the casting of the 13th Doctor. I think about taking her to see The Force Awakens, the new Ghostbusters and Wonder Woman at the cinema. We are definitely moving on in terms of female representation. These stories are for everyone, not just one small demographic. And we need to keep on going. Jodie Whittaker's casting is great news. But my hope is that she's just the first of many female Doctors. I hope that next time the show addresses the fact that for every regeneration now, the Doctor has always been white. I hope that in its limitless universe, the Doctor continues to be a hero that every child can empathise with and emulate. Hello, my name is Yossi Osman and I'm here to talk about some of the films that are coming out this summer. I've only got five minutes, so I'm going to pick a few. I've decided to totally ignore blockbusters just because that's what everyone's going to be talking about and there are some really, really interesting films coming out that I've think I could spend the time a little bit better on. So let's get cracking. The Beguiled, I'm pretty sure you might have heard of it already. It's by Sofia Coppola, who made Lost in Translation and Marie Antoinette. And she is only the second female director to win at Cannes. So already causing a bit of a splash. It's a thriller. It's based on the 1971 film and it's set during the Civil War. Sofia Coppola has done period drama before with Marie Antoinette. This one's slightly different. This is more of a thriller and it's set in a girls boarding school where everything gets a little bit stirred when an injured union soldier arrives this is quite an interesting one it's already got quite a lot of attention and um, reviews are pretty favorable i have to say i think Sophia copla can be a bit hit and miss me personally i love marie antoinette which is the one that everybody hates and i fell asleep in lost in translation which is the one that everybody loves so i'm probably not the best person to say but like all of the films i'm going to talk about today i've not seen any of them so please don't take my word for it moving on we've also got the big sick which is a great title for a film i'm sure you'll agree it's a real life story actually and the screenplay was written by the couple that are at the center of the film camille nanjiani and emily v gordon and actually Camille Nanjiani plays himself, so that's quite a nice take on it. It's about a real-life relationship between a Pakistani comic and his American graduate student girlfriend. He's worried about how his traditional Muslim parents will see the relationship, but things start to change when his girlfriend gets quite a serious illness. The reviews are pretty good, and also I think it's quite refreshing to see this sort of take on the traditional rom-com. I'm quite surprised that there haven't been many films dealing with these sort of, uh, let's say, interracial relationships before. But this this could be a really nice, unique film. And um, I think it's got some pretty good reviews. Another film to look out for, we've got God's Own Country, which is directed by Francis Lee. This is a British drama. It's set in the great county of Yorkshire. And it's actually, it, it's quite appealing to me. It looks like it's got a lot of interesting things behind it. It's about a farmer whose life is completely changed by the arrival of a Romanian migrant worker 
there. I think its subject matter is quite relevant, not only because of obviously the migrant story, but actually it's an LGBT film and it's quite tough apparently. It's quite, you know, relentless, but it's also very sensual. So there's a lot of different dynamics there um, that could make it really, really interesting. Critics seem to really, really like it at the moment. So that's another one coming out soon that I would recommend. We've also got Final Portrait, which is written and directed by Stanley Tucci, who I just love. So I'm really looking forward to seeing this one. He's just a, well, I've only really seen him, him acting before, but in every film that he's in, I tend to really enjoy his performances. I mean, he's in everything from The Devil Wears Prada to Transformers to The Lovely Bones, where he plays something quite terrifying. Um, so anyway, lots, lots. Of, he's done lots of stuff. So a film where he is writing and directing. And it stars Jeffrey Rush, who I also really like. And apparently it's quite an amusing one. It's about uh, a painter, that's who Jeffrey Rush plays, called Alberto Giacometti. And he is a painter who invites a American critic called James Lord to come and see him in Paris. And they have sort of a, I guess, witty banter, is the, is the way we might say it now. It's a comedy. So it's looking good as well. All of the films that I'm talking about, they've got pretty, pretty decent reviews. And then we have... Okay, so if you are not like me, and you don't literally cry in the cinema whenever you watch a horror film let me tell you I've only been to see a horror film twice in my life at the cinema and both times I've cried and they're not even proper horror films so I'm probably not the best person to talk about this but if you are a fan of horror then there is a film coming out called It Comes at Night Uh, it stars Joel Edgerton and it's directed by Trey Edward Schultz and I mean it starts with death apparently and it's about suspense and generally being scared so not one that I'm going to see but if you like horror apparently it's quite a good one last but not least one that I am really 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 excited about this is probably the one that I'm the most excited about it's by Catherine Bigelow who won the Oscar for The Hurt Locker um, and also made Zero Dark Thirty it's called Detroit and it's got two amazing British actors in John Boyega who's obviously come to fame through Star Wars but was also in um, Attack the Block if anyone's seen that I'd really recommend that. That's a great film. And um, Will Poulter, who I think is really, really talented. The history behind it, if if you don't know, it's about the race riots in Detroit in 1967. So actually it's quite poignant because it's a 50th anniversary of that. It's centred on an incident that happened within these riots. So police basically raided a black-owned business. It started the 12th Street riot. Um, and this film is centred on an incident at the Algiers Motel when police killed three black men as well as severely beating another seven black men and two white women if you don't know about the history you can go and read about it if you want to but it's obviously again another film that's quite relevant in these times seeing the kind of news stories that we get um, particularly when we talk about things like police brutality in the states so um it's it's looking i mean i am all for it i think catherine bigelow i I, is just so such a brilliant director i'm really really looking forward to this one I'm at Westminster with the absolutely excellent Jess Phillips, MP for Birmingham Yardley, author of Every Woman, One Woman's Truth About Speaking the Truth, an Outspoken Feminist. I'm not going to make any bones about it. I'm going to have to try really hard not to lick her face and tell her I love her. Oh, you could do that. Can I, can I lick yeah, your face, Jess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might be a bit dirty that you can lick it. It's dirty? What have you been up to? <laughs> well, I'm a bit hungover, but... 
Uh, I did clean it this morning. It's had a wash, so you can lick it. It's got very confusing. <laughs> Let's talk about politics. It's bound to be more straightforward. Okay, so I'm going to go in with a biggie. What do you think have been the biggest changes since the election? The biggest change since the election is absolutely that Parliament no longer functions in the way that it did before we left. The nature of a hung Parliament means that there is no power balance falling on one side and that everybody in here has an opportunity to use their voice to to gain traction in the things that they care about because Theresa May doesn't have a power base the Labour Party didn't have enough seats to get over the line and so in this sort of melee of nobody having the overall power there is a real chance that stuff can happen because everybody has to be kept happy essentially it's a bit like a big family where you know you've got to cook something for everybody even though that person's a vegetarian and that person's lactose intolerant everybody has to has a, has a voice in here now because every voice matters and that is a really brilliant thing and that has changed since parliament but also there is a real sense of a stalemate in here where it's very difficult to see how things are going to go forward mm-hmm. massive big things in the country and there is very little legislation coming up on the on the books about anything other than brexit which i mean board of brexit Board of Brexit. I think we're all bored of Brexit. Oh gosh, bored of Brexit, and that is all that is ever going to be talked about for at least the next eighteen months, two years, because it would be very difficult for the government to get through any even slightly contentious legislation because the Tory backbenchers on their side won't won't stand for it. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that there's a chance for other stuff to sneak through amid the chaos. Yeah. Which seems Absolutely, like... that, that is definitely true. We've seen a couple of examples of it, and we've only been here four weeks since the election, really. Um, and the, the first and most obvious example is the Stella Creasy amendment to the Queen's Speech Bill. Yeah, um, go Stella! Yeah, which was brilliant. And that is, a, that is a perfect example of how you can exploit a lack of power and a lack of, of a coherent sort of exercise going on so what Stella was able to do was when we arrived here there were so many people talking about other things about the Queen's speech we didn't know whether the DUP were going to sign up to it we didn't know whether they'd get it through and in that sort of chaos she was able to find an issue that she could swoop in on get lots of people across party to support and then change something and the government the thing about a hung parliament one of the whips the Tory whip said this to me is we don't want to lose you know you can't be seen to lose so if you think you're going to lose a vote you give in essentially right so and that's what happened with Stellas they they thought that they might lose the vote and so they gave in and there are definitely some conservative cabinet ministers who wanted to give in anyway just it didn't seem that Jeremy Hunt was one of them and he was the one in charge <laughs> of it Governments don't like to lose votes. The lack of certainty and the lack of any one person being a powerhouse in here anymore means that things can really change and individuals can really change things. And that is brilliant. That is brilliant. It leads us quite nicely onto the new parliamentary block that you're mm-hmm. chairing. Well, mm-hmm. not so new. You were saying it's been around um, for a while. Well, the Women's Parliamentary Labour Party has been around for around 25 years. Harriet Harman set it up, and it is basically the representatives, uh, Labour women from both the Commons and the Lords, um, and they they organise and uh, get together 
to change things for women both inside Parliament and in the Labour Party and outside in the country. And that has existed, like I say, for quite a, a good many years. However, we are now at the point um, in uh, the history of Labour women, that in the history of it, we now have more women in the Commons than ever before for, uh, sitting on the Labour Party benches. It's amazing. I mean, uh, we have more women in Parliament than ever before across Parliament, and that is because the Labour Party has done the, the mass work in the heavy lifting of that issue. Um, we have more women in the Labour Party, 119 women sitting in the Commons, and that's more than every other party added up together. And with that big number, when you think of that in terms of a number of MPs and a number of votes in Parliament, that becomes a powerful thing. Yeah, really powerful. So when we think about 10 DUP votes as keeping Theresa May basically dangling in her in 10 Downing Street, and it feels like she's dangling by a thread. Very much, particularly when she's having to like get rid of a few or a sort of... I know. Yeah, the racists have gone. Yeah, basically. And and yeah, I mean, she's got no room for firing racists. Going back to your parliamentary block, one of the matters that your policies that you're dealing with is the domestic violence bill that the Tories are bringing in, which is a matter quite close to your heart. It is. It is. I worked for years in domestic violence services um, and still every day in my constituency I deal with those issues. Um, and the domestic violence bill, I think, is a, a good example of where the Conservatives do care. And you know, I don't think even the ones who make ridiculous racist comments, I don't even think she, who I'd literally never heard of before she made that racist comment, <laughs> um, I think I don't, even she would say we've got to do something about domestic yeah. violence. So the domestic violence bill is a real opportunity to take something through Parliament that could change things in the country for victims of domestic violence. However, if it is just seen as the Tories' opportunity to try and look good on this and all they're going to do is change you know, some laws or make different uh, criminal offences exist on the record, they will have entirely missed the point because while they definitely care about domestic violence, they don't seem to recognise that actually cutting local council budgets and cutting the NHS and cutting the police. I waited six and a half hours for a police response the other day. Six and a half hours, and it is not the police's fault. It's not because they weren't taking the issue seriously. It's because there there wasn't enough officers to respond, and it was a high-risk domestic violence situation. Unless they see it as an issue that exists everywhere, not just an issue that exists as something they can write down on a piece of paper and say this new law will help X the domestic violence bill will be a huge wasted opportunity So what is the bloc going to try to do? How, how so, do we work I mean, around the, what we will What we will definitely try to do is we will have a strategy for working cross party with other women as well I imagine, mm-hmm. but the bloc of women, what we will do is we will seek to amend the bill to make sure that it protects the things that we know matter to women in those situations. Now, the idea of having a domestic violence bill and a domestic violence commissioner that comes with it is a Labour Party policy from 2015 manifesto. So it is already something that was created by Labour women 
and pushed and pushed in okay. Parliament using women's voices largely in the Labour movement to keep on highlighting this to the point where we are now, where everybody now recognises it's a good thing. This isn't, none of this is new. This is women aggravating for change for decades that leads us to this point. And what we will make sure when the bill comes before us, because a bill in Parliament, it's not like, you know, just a sort of idea and they stand up and say it. It is, it is laid a number of times and you amend it and amend it and amend it. You go on bill committee. So the women in the Parliamentary Labour Party will seek to have all the seats on the bill committee, for example, um, where all of the minutiae of what goes in the bill will be decided. But before even that stage, we will seek to be lobbying different stakeholders, different groups, to make sure that what goes in the bill in the first place is good. And when there is gaps in it, when it's published, or first reading is what we call that, when it's, we will seek to amend it at second reading, which is when you have a debate in the Commons, and then it goes to committee. And we will sit for hours, basically arguing the amendments until we get it. Then so fine-tuning it. So constantly fine-tuning it till you get what it, you want. And then it goes to the Lords, and the women in the Lords, the women in the Parliamentary Labour Party in the Lords, will then pick it up and they will amend it further. And we will constantly keep going until eventually they go, oh my God, just have whatever you want. <laughs> it's essentially nagging on, okay. on an industrial and organised scale. Union it's, it, it's exactly like the idea of a block is exactly what the union is built, yeah. on, built on. And if, if they will want support for it, they will want to seem like they're not out of touch on this issue so they will give in largely at the stage before the bill is written and people like me and other members of the Women's Parliamentary Labour Party will be in those discussions before the bill even reaches the House of Commons we will be in with the Home Secretary we'll be in with um, the, the Department for Local Government so Sajid Javid, Amber Rudd they will want to know our opinion now because they can't risk it falling because it's the, like the only thing they've actually got left from their manifesto in the Queen's speech. They can't, like, can't lose this one now. <laughs> this is the only thing that actually made it from our manifesto. We failed to take the homes of the elderly. We failed to remove the uh, free school meals from children. All we've got left is this. <laughs> we'll have to do this one. We've this is left, the one we're going to do. We've been left with the one that's quite good. How did yeah, that happen? Well, it's because it's motherhood. Everything that goes through this house now will be motherhood and apple pie. In that, you know, it will, it will. Every bill that they place in front of Parliament has will have to have some relative consensus across party because they're never going to get it through. Yeah. So I, you yeah. know, I think it was West Streeting. Um, who is the MP for Ilford, said to them, I vote for any of your bills, as long as I can put in a line that says you'll, you'll make sure that the A&E in my area doesn't close. So everybody now has a negotiating chip. That's kind of exciting. It is exciting, but it does mean also that without executive power, which I actually think is what the electorate wanted, I think they wanted this, like they wanted nobody to you know have the full say. Yeah, but the only trouble with that is things will move slowly change yeah. certain things individual things will progress just next question what is wrong with them <laughs> i don't know what is wrong with them because you know when you're here it is it outside it is easy to really loathe and detest them and feel vitriolic loathe like loathing it really is when you're here you learn that fundamentally the tory members of parliament 
with only a few exceptions, and there is exceptions in every single party, you learn that they came here to do the same thing you came here to do, and that was to make things better for people. And there, there, like I said, there's a, there's a handful that care about power and status, but most Tory MPs come here because they believe in changing things for the better for people, and often the poorest people. So what I then don't understand is how that then translates to some of the things that they then vote for. It's baffling. It is totally baffling, but it's, it's, it's ideological. And that ideology sort of allows forgiveness of the sort of cruel to be kind is where they are and we're kind to be kind. Yeah, I mean, that makes more sense. Yeah, kind to be kind yeah. does seem... But they double would argue, kind. I'd, du- I'd fight for double, double kind. Double kind, yeah. yeah. Two times kind. <laughs> and, and cruel to be kind is okay, actually. There is, and there is a need for some cruel to be kind as long as the kind happens. <laughs> <laughs> And what we see... Cruel to be... What, what's it, guys? Cruel, cruel, guys. cruel, cruel to be... Just cruel. Yeah, okay. Cruel to... For the sake of cutting money is not okay. But what they are... Cruel's what, not cool. Cruel, cruel is not cool. <laughs> um, but so sometimes I think that, you know, like all the stuff about sanctioning people, and stuff, somewhere in their heads they think that that is a good thing to do because it gets some people back to work. But for the some people it gets back to work, I for every one of those I have ten people in my surgery literally suicidal yeah. because of the process. And that that is a broken system. There is also something wrong with just too kind in that situation where we just say, Yeah, oh, you know, everybody's a bit ill, you know, have some yeah. time off work. That's not okay either. So there has to be a system where you can still be kind. And the problem is is that we draw too many arbitrary lines. Governments have to make a rule and and make a line that either people go above or below. And people aren't like that. People's lives aren't like that. Risk is dynamic. Lives are dynamic. They change. And one day you could be, you know, sitting pretty with your rhubarb growing in your garden in your nice house. And the next minute they call it an election and you're going to lose your house. Yeah. So and, and, And so that could literally happen to me. And I have in my life lived on social security and not wouldn't have been able to survive feed my family if it weren't for the social security that I had been provided the only way I would have been able to survive would be to to rely on handouts from somebody else i.e. your parents your grandparents and not everybody has that that's not a social security yeah. solution for the nation particularly working class families it, well, we don't have that buffer where um, you can go well I'll tap up mum and dad absolutely no, they have abs- no money either exactly they've got nothing in fact we're the ones paying yeah, for things for absolutely. them and you know I often say this my mother-in-law picks my children up from school every day but she's not a solution for the nation She's not the childcare solution. She'd make going, a mint, though. She'd, <laughs> she'd, mint it. She'd, 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 she'd be busy. She'd also, be busy. those children would be orderly. What we're up against is we're up against people who don't realise some of the risk, risk in the system and, and the risk it takes because, by and large, and not exclusively, the Conservative Party come from a place where taking a risk isn't that much of a risk. And so that is what's wrong with them, mm-hmm. is that... They never just stood to lose literally everything. I doubt that there's many people who sit on the benches opposite me who ever had to like turn out their sofas to find some money to get the petrol in the car so that they could go to that work. Is. That is that is the reality 
that has been the reality of most people who sit on the Labour benches at some point in their lives and it needs to be more so it was for many years and I think it is starting to be again and the understanding of risk I think is the big issue that you and David Cameron was the absolute personification of a man who thought he was so blasé so insulated by his lifestyle that he took enormous risks without a buy you leave for what it would be like because and then now we're leaving the European Look, Union I'm alright Jack it is totally I'm alright Jack what about getting more women into parliament yeah, How I mean, do we do that? Uh, well, I mean, uh, there is there is a structural problem with the number of women in Parliament. It's the same structural problem that exists with not enough women Absolutely. in any powerful yeah. position. Yeah. Power is in powerful positions in the country, in the world, you're much more likely to be men. And if positions become powerful that weren't once then men start to be the ones who do them. Somebody told me this brilliant example about how coding was largely seen as a clerical task done by women Mm -hmm. um, when software development was first being done and it said coders were all women doing like doing the card punching and and it was largely done by women until it was started to be seen as something that was going to be really really important and hold the power for the future and suddenly women got phased out of being the ones who did coding because the power it's not about the money it became a powerful position and so men started to be the ones who did it. And that is a structural problem that we have in our culture, in our society. And the only way to stop a structural problem, in my opinion, is not just fucking hope. Hope, <laughs> the triumph of hope over experience. Yeah, will, hope is sometimes a prick. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I mean, hope is not good enough. I'm not, you know, it's like trickle-down economics. It's fine if you're not the one waiting for it to trickle on you. Yeah. And it just feels like an annoying drip. And so if you're the one waiting, which women are the ones waiting, it, it's really, really irritating. So we have to make a structural change. And in this instance, women in Parliament, there are structural changes that can be made, and the Labour Party has proven that. And that structural change is that you demand that the positions have to be given to yeah. women. So positive discrimination is what uh, it's sort of largely get terms, but actually what it is is a rebalancing of a discrimination that has already existed forever. It's like when people say about the word feminist, well, I, you know, I, why isn't it equalitist? And it's like, well, we're the one being oppressed, so we yeah. have to shout louder. Yeah. This is ours. Also, I, I, I really like would like to be sick in my mouth a little bit when people say that. Would you? Yeah, yeah really. It's awful. Equalitist. I mean, it just sounds stupid. It's awful, isn't it? I'm an equalitist. Oh, well, okay then. Well, I'll stick up for the women and you stick up for the men. Oh, your job's done. Would you like to help me? (laughs) There are a lot of parties that have women leaders. We've got Theresa May, got Arlene Foster. You can't see the face that I'm pulling. It's not a happy one. Um, But we've also got Nicola Sturgeon and Caroline Lucas. So there's a lot of women in power, yet women don't seem to have power. Any thoughts on that? We're only just in the period where women politicians are leading things much more, apart from Angela Merkel, who's been there for like ever. Um, There is, it's become like a thing very recently. So you have Arlene Foster, you also have Rhys Davidson, Kezia Dugdale in Scotland, all the parties in Mm -hmm. Scotland seem to be led by women. So we, we won't see the effect of things being led by women for a while. And, and that will undoubtedly mean better results for women, as long as those women seek to do that. 
So just being a woman isn't good enough. Now, it's definitely brilliant for young women to turn on the television and see women in positions of power. That's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. It's much more likely that they're going to be able to visualise themselves in that role and that young boys visualise women in that role still. And um, so that's definitely a step in the right direction. However, unless those women make common cause of the rights of women and the structural problems that exist that mean the rights of women are held back, it won't make anywhere near the power shift that those women have enjoyed themselves for women out there. So unless you think, if Theresa, unless Theresa May thinks, I get to be the Prime Minister of this building because a hundred years ago there were women who were willing to die for me to even sit my arse down on one of these seats. Not even to sit my arse down on the seat, be able to vote for somebody to sit their arse down mm-hmm. on one of these seats. So unless she recognises that the, the only reason she got there was because of the struggle of the women's movement and that she has a responsibility to pick that baton up and continue it, progress that. The end result is not Theresa May being the Prime Minister. The end result is that Theresa May, as the Prime Minister, changes things for women. So she has to care about policies for women. Now Arlene Foster, ha ha ha, that's (laughs) so far she's fallen at the very first hurdle. We're not even allowed to control our own bodies. And the trouble is with powerful, not all powerful women, Caroline Lucas certainly isn't like this, but arguably she doesn't have that much power. No, that is She's true. got power with her own, within her own, you know, she's a legend in her own lunch time, but she's not, she's not, <laughs> she, she's not really massive she's got a, <laughs> a legend in your own lunch time, Caroline. Not, no disrespect to the woman. And similarly, Nicola Sturgeon has much more power and she has the power to change things for women in Scotland. Yeah. And, and I don't doubt that she's actually trying to do that and she will be pushed more to do that by the voices of Ruth Davidson and Kessiger Dugdale pushing that agenda as well onto her. So that's, that's Scotland is probably the better example. But Theresa May, I, I see no evidence that she is fighting for the women in my constituency. No. She wore that T-shirt once, but she didn't have a right to wear that T-shirt. I mean, I ask <laughs> Your you. face is amazing right now. I mean, and that's the problem. Women's representation isn't the end. Women's re- representation is the means to an end. What made you decide to write Every Woman? The absolute honest answer, I wish it could be like I had a book burning inside of me and it just had to come out. That's simply not the case. Somebody asked me to do it. Like all things often with uh, women, they don't feel entitled to it. We don't go, I've got a fantastic book. Oh, definitely, the nation needs to hear it. Somebody asked me and I thought, oh, okay then. Um, and in the meantime, I like, came up with all these amazing books I was going to write about sexy vampires. <laughs> I was going to write one about a cleaner in Westminster, like the secret life of a cleaner and how she was actually making all the legislation. And nobody realised there was just this like woman called Doris who was like picking up the papers from the bins and then like remarking them, a bit like um, and, and like was genuinely changing the <laughs> law. And then, so. That I'm going to come I back to. Read that. <laughs> that I'm going I mean, every to. Every woman's good, but I think <laughs> kind of just Doris, all over it. yeah, Doris's legislative practice um, is is obviously the next work that Clearly. I'm going to focus on. Standard issue for all women. 
Hello, hello, you wonderful smashers, and welcome to the standard issue five minute summer holiday survival guide. My name's Daisy, and I have a little girl who is five years and 51 weeks old. And here's just a quick disclaimer before we get angry letters, I am in no way a childcare expert, and my advice should be taken with a pinch of salt. If, however, you do follow my guide, please use your one phone call from prison to call Standard Issue so we can do a follow-up article on it, or distance ourselves legally from you entirely, whichever is funnier. So, the school holidays, the six-week break, the time children are sent out to harvest the year's crops, or simply run with childish abandon through fields of wheat. A sacred time for the entire family. Bonds between siblings are cemented and everyone takes moments to reflect on the passage of time over the school year and memories are made on sandy beaches. Except that mostly they aren't. Most of the summer break is spent honing the emotional targets on your family's push buttons so that they can be pressed at will when an argument breaks out every four minutes. It's a time to test their defences and reinforce your own. It's a time to thicken everyone's skin and remind yourself what a gift full-time education is. My advice as a parent of a particularly sullen five-year-old is as follows. Make a plan. Make time to do their favourite activities but spread them out. One or two a week on agreed days is fair. Soft play, an activity park or pottery painting, anything that might have an entrance fee or cost more than a trip to the park. Make sure that you can afford them and don't agree to anything you're not likely to end up doing. If they know that they have these treats to look forward to, they'll be less likely to nag for them if the dates are set in stone from the off. If you're feeling creative or particularly bored, then make a visual kid-friendly weekly planner with the activities listed on there. And I mean a sheet of A4 with crayon drawings, not Blue Peter level artistry. This is what I plan to do as my kid is a nagger and she needs structure rather than long days dragging on forever with her totally boring parents. My next plan of action is to remember that there are 30 kids in my child's class and you can bet good money that some of their parents are dreading having to entertain their kids for weeks on end. So stick a post up on social media to the effect of heading to the park near school if anyone's free and you can bet someone will be glad of the impromptu invitation. Chuck some jam sandwiches in a bag and even if no one else is free you've made the effort and you're no longer the antisocial mum of the group which is usually me. One of my favourite things to do with my daughter and this totally works, it's tried and tested, is homemade treasure hunts. And these can be used to distract them if you need to get on with some work at home or you're somewhere where there are no facilities to entertain children. So write a list of the things for kids to find around them, such as something blue, something high up or something smelly or something noisy, something red and so on. Just the weirder the better. If your little one isn't writing just yet, get them to draw a picture of whatever it is that they find. Honestly, kids love it. And as long as you can think of enough adjectives, this game can go on as long as you need it to. And don't feel bad about asking for help with childcare, especially if you work. I work pretty much full time and lots of unsociable hours. And I used to feel really guilty asking if anyone could watch my daughter for a few hours. 
If unloading the kids onto a mate or a family member is the only way for you to make the rent this month, then feeling guilty about it isn't going to help you pay the bills. Just make sure that you repay the favour with other people's kids when you can. And remember that just because the kids get six weeks off doesn't mean that you do. And even though that is total rubbish and we should all totally get the entire summer off every year. And finally, look after yourself. If you're burnt out from entertaining the kids and working all the other hours in the day, summer is going to be as bad as you think it will. If you can afford it, buy yourself your favourite drink and crack it open the second they're in bed. And if not, go to a mate's house and drink theirs. But get a babysitter. Uh, Keep the kids' bedtimes regular and keep the evenings for yourself. And don't feel bad about sitting down and watching them play or sticking the telly on and checking your phone. Sometimes those are the most relaxing parts of the day. You can always take five minutes away for a pretend poo in the bathroom if they are being especially horrid. So we can't really afford a summer holiday this year, so it's just the three of us and six weeks of potential arguments at home coming up. Remember, as kids, we'd be happy with a ball in the garden, so take time to remind them of their privilege as they moan about being bored. We may do just fine without Hatchimals and fidget spinners. Thank you very much. So good luck, stay strong, and drink plenty. Uh, uh, uh. Question. I'm not answering that. Hello, this is Sarah Milliken and you are listening to Sarah Milliken's Question Time. Now, I am currently sitting in my office. Uh, there is the next door neighbour is mowing their lawn, if you can hear that. Uh, and the dog is chewing his toes. So there's all sorts of atmos happening right now. Now, I'm going to do again like I did last week. I'm going to do uh, two questions uh, because I feel like there's questions that need answering and I'm here to help you. Um Angie Holland on Facebook asks, is jam really a sandwich filling? Why can you not buy jam, peanut butter or Marmite sandwiches in Boots or Marks and Spencers? I don't want a load of rocket and feckin' brie in my sandwich. First of all, bless you for putting feckin', but I do not mind in the slightest people saying fucking. So I'm going to rewrite that. I don't want a load of rocket and fucking brie in my sandwich. And I can totally agree. I don't even know what brie is. I think cheese should just be called cheese. Don't call it halloumi, don't call it brie, don't call it cheddar. Cheese. Because then I know the key word, cheese. Uh, My husband the other day said, what's feta? And I was like, cheese. And then he said, what's brioche? Is that cheese? No, that's bread. Oh, it's a minefield when you go to a posh restaurant. So yes, jam is really a sandwich filling. Crisps are a sandwich filling. (laughs) What on earth are these sandwich people doing? They They have literally no idea how we live. Maybe we should... I was going to say March, but survey. <laughs> uh, survey. Maybe we should do a survey. So I'm going to petition. Uh, so thanks, Angie, very much for your question. Uh, another question. Um, Amanda Kiddle, or Kiddell, if she's being posh, I imagine, uh, on Facebook, asks, am I the only person who puts my spices in alphabetical order for quickness and have to hang my washing out with matching pegs on each item? Now, the matching pegs thing, I don't get that. I do my favourite colours, so the the colours that I like the best will always get the pegs will get used quicker. And also I've noticed that my knickers need <laughs> three pegs these days. I'm sure they just needed two the last time <laughs> I had me washing line out. Anyway, um, that's for another time. Uh, and I also put my spices in alphabetical order, um, but hmm, I haven't checked them lately, and I think we just put them back willy-nilly. And also, we've got something, we've currently got three jars of something called chicken seasoning. I'm pretty sure that's not a spice. Uh, 
But we've got three jars of it because apparently chicken is boring. <laughs> Thank you so much for your questions. It's always a joy. Uh, and if you want to send uh, a question in, you can do it on my Facebook page, on the Standard Issue Facebook page. Uh, and if you do it on Twitter, use the hashtag SMQT for Sarah Millican Question Time, and then I can find them easily. Uh, much love. I'll see you next week. Bye. Standard Issue for all women. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny Off The Blocks. Hi, welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, the weekly roundup of all the things that are occurring in women's sport. Not all of them, because, you know, I've got about five minutes to kill here, but um, it's some of them. Yeah, so uh, I'm recording this in my bedroom, so you might occasionally hear some really loud Turkish music playing from a car that stopped at the junction outside, or possibly someone drunkenly shouting, or just just buses, because we have those in Hackney as well. Anyway, welcome. As I said, we're going to start with the England Cricket World Cup. So... England have beaten the West Indies in Bristol last week to take the top spot at the group stage in the ICC Women's World Cup to uh, secure a place in the semi-finals against South Africa. And that's going to happen on Tuesday, the 18th of July. I'm recording this on Monday because someone has to edit this before Wednesday to make sure I don't say fuck or bollocks or anything like that. So at this stage, obviously... I don't know what's happened, but you, the listener, you do. So either way, um, we're into the semi-finals, and if we make it through, which you know we've got a decent shot at, we could potentially set up a final against Australia, which would be pretty epic. So the last time we played South Africa in the tournament, we won by a solid 68. At this point, it seems like a uh, it seems like a very achievable dream. However. We did only beat Australia by three earlier in the competition, so, you know, that would be potentially a less achievable dream, but a dream nonetheless, and uh, and probably a pretty epic final. So that's going to be on the 23rd of July, so if you're listening to this, and England have made it through the semi-final, you know what to do. Now... On to the next bit of sporty news. The Women's Euros kicked off this week in the Netherlands with 16 teams battling out to topple current champions Germany because it is always Germany, basically. Interestingly, Germany did go through a brief period of being a bit shit, but someone saw that they were being a bit shit. This is more the men's team, to be fair. They had a little look around, they were like, well, this is a bit shit, isn't it? All of our youth players are a bit shit, aren't they? We're not teaching them very well, are we? Should we do that a bit better? And now they're really good. I'm just saying it's not a coincidence. Anyway, obviously Germany aside, uh, England have got a really, really good chance here um, because, lest we forget, they were third place finishers in the 2015 World Cup and we've got some fresh young blood whom, unlike in the men's competition, given the uh, sort of lack of media interest, hopefully won't be broken by the public. But there is also plenty of experience with the likes of... I'm going to say they're household names, because they are to me, but I know about sport a little bit, so, you know. But I'm going to say household names because lots of people will have heard of these people anyway now, because, as I keep saying, football is the big success story in women's sport. So, for example, Captain Steph Horton, uh, Farrah Williams, who has 163 caps for England, by the way, which is pretty impressive stuff. 
Lucy Bronze and Manchester City's Tony Duggan, who you might have heard of recently because she has just signed for Barcelona. Even if you know fuck all about football, you probably know that Barcelona are held in quite high esteem in the footballing world. Yeah, you do. So England kick off against Scotland tonight, if you're listening to this on Wednesday. And it's being shown on Channel 4, and they are promoting the shit out of it, along with Little Mix, if you were familiar. I couldn't get in an incongruous grime reference this week, so I've just gone with popular music in general. And Little Mix, who would very much like to see you salute the lionesses, and I endorse this message. Kickoff is at 7.45 tonight, and I'll be dusting off my Italia 90 shirt for the occasion, because it's beautiful, and I love it. Also worth a mention the, uh, is the Women's Lacrosse World Cup, which is now underway, and it started with a victory by England over Wales and another victory by England over Scotland and then subsequent defeats by Australia and the USA. Now, I'm not entirely sure if lacrosse is one of those sports that you think is sort of really is played by really well-mannered posh people or if it's one where people just sort of beat the shit out of each other with sticks. I honestly don't know the answer to that. I didn't play it at my comprehensive school in Essex, possibly because it required more equipment than a solitary bollard, or, strictly speaking, sat just outside the parameters of sort of grey and miserable. Anyway, we didn't play it. I, I don't know. There's like one... Is it like polo, but with humans, not horses? I know there are humans in polo as well, but... We digress. Um, I do know, via the medium of Instagram, that one of my friends went to watch it the other day because it's on at the Surrey Sports Park in Guildford and she had a lovely time. Uh, And she doesn't usually hit people with sticks, as far as I know. It's also getting some coverage by BBC Sport from the quarterfinals onwards via its website and app. So it's a bit of a shame that at the time of recording this, Canada looked pretty likely to send England packing and... You know, I am English, but I know we have lovely Welsh and Scottish listeners as well, and, you know, possibly from all over the place. But anyway, um, Wales and Scotland never really unpacked in the first place, to be honest. So if England was your shining hope, soz, there is no hope. But if you like that sort of thing, you can still watch it, or at least some of it, up until the final on Saturday. That's all for me this week. I'll be back again next week with more news of uh, sports things for women. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you did this week? This week I watched 1977's The Rescuers, which is... Not one of the ones they are planning to make a live-action remake of, um, you know, presumably because they can't get the mice to do the work. (laughs) The mice are really tricky to train. Yeah. You can't get the mice. uh, But it did have a sequel, which I actually haven't seen. Um, It was the the first film I ever saw. I saw it in the Electra Cinema in Newport Pagnell, um, which is notorious. It's in almost all my stories start there somehow. It is the cinema in which my nan made me go back and watch Ghostbusters by myself after I had already been removed from it once. When I was about nine, I actually wrote a whole story about that. It's on the Standard Issue podcast, if you're interested. So, yes, it was, it was quite stressful for me because 
having loved something, I didn't want to go back. And then, you know, that thing that happened to me when I suddenly watched Rocky once and thought, oh, my God, he badges her into sex, doesn't he? Yeah, and, and, yeah, a little of me died inside. So has everyone else seen it? Yeah. The Rescuers. Yes. I have not seen it. I've not seen it. I have seen it when I was all, and again recently for the purposes of this podcast, and I had the book as well, so I loved it. Yeah, and I, I think I saw it at the cinema as well, but I wasn't born in 1977, so maybe I didn't. But I have, I've watched it recently. Did you like it, Dunleavy? Actually, I, I know, sharp intake of breath, I actually loved it. It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, and I would start by saying that the music is fucking dreadful. Seriously, <laughs> there is an opening song that is interminable. I think I'm genuinely still listening to it right now. And, and it makes me angry. I'm really angry with that song. It's almost like Disney put forward a test. Strongest, bravest souls would get to see yeah. two mice champion against evil or just naughtiness. Yeah. But it's actually pretty... If you haven't seen it, the plot of it is basically this. Two mice set off to save a little girl who has been kidnapped by a bad woman. It's relatively short on, on plot like that. But it's actually quite interesting. It's unusual because it's in told in a non-linear style, it's, which is the only other kids' film that I can think of that does that is Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is also oh. awesome. They uncover it, so it's actually interesting. Normally with kids, they treat them like idiots and they actually have a voiceover explaining the plot as they go along. But it also really, it looks really different as well. It does. It? They it don't doesn't. look like Disney characters in the sort of chiselled weird way that yeah. Disney characters do. And it's really memorable. It's got some it's got some lovely stuff. It's got, you know, an albatross aeroplane. It's got a dragonfly speedboat. It's really charming. It's basically but, an advert for using animals as public yeah. transport. But the best thing about it is I, I've been watching these and I have to say that Disney is as sexist as hell when it comes when it, well, just when it comes to everything. And this is not only not sexist, it's actually borderline feminist. The rest is, <gasps> I know. Borderline feminist. Weird. I know, seriously. Like my life. How was it allowed in the 1970s? No, so, a couple of reasons, right? Like, firstly, it has a damsel in distress, Penny. And normally in Disney stuff, the damsel in distress or the child, she is really passive. She likes, she's like Sleeping Beauty, yeah. she's asleep. Yeah, or you know, Snow, Snow White, who just fucking loves singing at housework. She does, That's and she's, she's dead in Snow White. That's how passive oh, yeah, she, she is. Dead, isn't it? She's actually <laughs> full-on dead. They're more passive than dead. <laughs> Sorry, spoiler alert, Snow White dies. What? Um, yeah, Ariel in the... Can't talk, she doesn't have a voice. So, yeah, that's really great, because I think that... And she, she's quite... She, is, she tries to, on a number of occasions herself. She sends for help. I mean, what she gets is two mice, which must be slightly disappointing. She's but dead nonchalant about it, though. Yep. She's just like, oh, the mice are she here. Is. She takes it. Like, Penny, there's a lot of stuff to love about Penny. Um, the second reason it's, like, excellent is, well, who Penny gets saved by? Penny gets saved by another woman, which is really unusual in Disney. Not a man that comes and saves her. It's a, well, it's a man and a woman, but Bianca, who is played by Eva Gabor, is pretty oh, much... Is that Zsa Zsa Gabor's sister? It is. Oh, she had a sister. Yeah, she nice did. Nice one. Who? Um, she was and Bianca is very much the Jane yeah, Tennyson. learn every day. <laughs> <laughs> She's the Jane Tennyson of the mouse detective world. She puts herself forward for a tough case, and the, the mice down the station don't think she can do it. But she has to get sent with Bernard, a janitor, um, because they, have, they make her send a man. Um, which is one of those examples of showing sexism rather than being sexist because she actually does a lot of saving. And really interestingly, she is in the driving seat when it comes to the romance. In fact, I mean, I know mice have quite a short lifespan, so they have to act fast. But Bernard experiences the kind of in-work sexual harassment that only usually happens at Uber. 
Yeah, well, Bianca basically only chooses him as her partner because she fancies her pants off him, which is weird because he's not actually wearing any pants because he's a mouse. Sure. Just has a little jacket on. He's wearing a hat, though, isn't he, which is unusual. Hang on, he's got a jacket. That isn't pants. No pants. Yeah. 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 Wrong. Um, We've all done it. Donald Duck, same. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, weird, isn't it? Bernard is not an alpha mouse. He would get absolutely pummeled with... He wouldn't, no. He hasn't had not had his switch turned on, um, unfortunately not. Or but. his pants put on. And the third great woman character is Madame Medusa, who is the baddie, who, in Disney films traditionally, the bad character, the female, she's usually driven by sanity, like she's the fear of ageing, that someone's more attractive, that her... her Pride has and been her. really hot as well, like Snow White's stepmother is beautiful. Boom. And is showing no signs of aging. <laughs> yeah, nice. but nonetheless, she's obsessed by but it. She's obsessed. Yeah. Whereas Madame Medusa is just an ordinary woman, albeit an ordinary woman who keeps alligators as pets. And we all would if we could. And I would love, can I just say, Brutus and Nero, fucking yeah. champion. But she is, driven by, she is driven by greed. And it's really interesting to see a woman be given another motivation that's yeah. something to do with vanity. It does happen in other Disney films as well. Ursula is, you know, she's motivated by power and yeah. she, or she's just manipulating a bunch of bellends, really. Yes. Yeah. Cruella de Vil, why is she motivated? Oh, that's that's vanity. She wants that for dogs, her coat, yeah. doesn't oh, she? Coat. And dogs. Yeah. Just dogs. dogs. <laughs> she loves dogs. Yeah. yeah. Um, and something occurred to me when I was watching this. I thought, you know, perhaps... I know it's like I had a moment of clarity. It was like, perhaps... I like this because I like stuff that's got like, like non-passive female characters. Maybe it's because I like villains that aren't just you know one-dimensional. Like oh, they're all. And then it occurs to me that possibly, actually, it's the other way around. Perhaps I like that stuff because I watched The Rescuers when I was really little, and the it's Rescuers, a bloody great film. The Rescuers shaped your life. Yeah. Them and Darlene Connor. Possibly. Yeah. yeah. So, what score? Are we going to give? Well, before we get to the score, uh, I was going to say that I'm going to give it. I was going to give it four out of five, but I just want to tell you a little story that apparently in 1999, when it was released on VHS, remember that Disney had to recall. <laughs> Too th- young, th- really? Yeah. I got mine out of the shed and showed it to my nephew, and Are he we was still just like, about "What VHS? the fuck is that?" Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, they had to recall three million of them. I mean, you didn't have to give them back, but that was the choice because someone sliced a picture of a naked lady into the VHS and it went out with all of the copies. So based on that, I'm actually going to give it five (laughs) out of five. Five out of five what? Five unexpected tit shots out of five. (laughs) That's all for this week's Podzine. Thanks for tuning in to the delights of Susan Wacoma and Deborah Francis-White who we were chuffed to bits to have join us at Latitude Festival last weekend. And while we're on the subject of Latitude, many thanks to Tanya for having us back for our third year and to Nick, our tremendous artist liaison, who liaised like a boss and now we are all part crisp. Join us next week for more mega lols as we're joined by Hazel Davis, who'll be talking to us about the Edinburgh Fringe and comedian Lou Conran. It's going to be rad as fuck. Our music was composed and recorded by Barry Hilton, all rights reserved. Thanks to David Young, Mary Young and John Clare for their help with the stings. We have an archive full to brimming with excellent articles over at www.standardissuemagazine.com and Sarah's got a whole third of her website devoted to us. We have various events coming up and loads more planned across the country, not just in London. In fact, we've got a bunch at Edinburgh this year so please do have a look at Sarah's website for more information on that Uh, you'll find that at 
sarahmillican.com forward slash standard hyphen issue. We would love to hear from you. Uh, if you've got a sexism of the week you want to suggest to us or a question for our glorious leader, Sarah Millican, or just, you know, you want to tell us we're brilliant or something like that, um, you can write to us at mailbag at standardissuemagazine.com, follow us on Twitter at standardissueuk, or find us on Facebook and Instagram. All of our podcasts are available on iTunes and Podomatic. We'd love you to subscribe, or if you've got a second, rate or review us. Other than that, all that remains for me to say is stay frosty, champs. Standard issue for all women.